Uh, Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. And uh, we talked a little bit about this, the Bible study this past Wednesday. And I want to cover a few things that we spoke about and then also speak about some of God's resolutions for what happens when we are uh, disappointed and um, so turn your Bible with me to Jeremiah chapter 20 and let's look at verse 7 and let's remember to pray for the event with Pastor Pastor Love coming down um, September 30th through the 2nd of October and then my brother comes down a couple weeks later with a group from Baltimore so that's going to be fun so we're going to have some visits and we'll have some fun and uh, be really great to invite some friends, family, co-workers people that you may know that may be interested in finding out more about us but Jeremiah here is in a very interesting place and you know when you think about September 11th when you think about the the incredible shock, right, that it all happens, that all happens for us. Just the disbelief, the amazement that something like this could happen. And um, the, the, just the mass casualties of people that died. I believe it was about 3,000 people that perished. When something like that happens in a nation or in a person's life or in a family, uh, there is really the process that begins to try to, um, to uh, what's the word I'm thinking of, process this. How do you process tragedy, grief and, grief and pain? How do you process that? How do you do that? And what can happen is a lot of times we may not have had a September 11th recently or maybe we are facing things in our personal lives or maybe we know people that have faced some very traumatic things in their life. And I think that one great theme that we could speak about sometime in the future is post-traumatic stress. When we hear about that post-traumatic stress, we think of war, you know, someone that's been through a death in the family. But people go through spiritual traumatic stress. And they go through spiritual um, trauma. And many times when we don't know how to deal with it from God's point of view, um, we become disappointed, we become disillusioned, we become bitter, and then we can become cynical. And I wanted to talk about kind of a very realistic topic here about idealism. You know what idealism is? Idealism is, and this is what, this is what Jeremiah was facing. Let's read Jeremiah's testimony here. Oh Lord, you induced me and I was persuaded. And the King James says, Lord, you, you deceived me. You are stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. Now, what's Jeremiah talking about? Jeremiah was a prophet. He had a calling of a prophet to preach to Israel death, death destruction, the, the impending doom if, if Israel didn't turn to the Lord. Can you imagine being that be like, you know, that's your ministry? You know, like, what are you called to do? Well, I'm called to stand downtown in Houston and preach impending doom. And I think nobody would really listen to you. And I think that was what was happening in Israel at the time. Nobody was listening to Jeremiah. Jeremiah was, he was like Noah. People were mocking him. But this was 
this was God's calling on Jeremiah for that time. And so Jeremiah is doing this, he is doing this, he's doing this, and he's faced with this incredible um, disappointment because Israel doesn't repent. Israel doesn't turn. There's no revival in Israel at that time. Israel is not rushing to Jeremiah like they did with Jonah when all of Nineveh got saved. And so possibly Jeremiah's idealistic thought about his ministry or his calling or God's plan for him was being challenged to a point where it wasn't happening what he was thinking. And this is kind of what happened with us is that in Christianity, in our Christian walk, we can sometimes adopt idealistic ideas. Ideas that are biblical, that are that is doctrine, that is good teaching from the Bible, that is God's mind. But without a cross, without Calvary, without daily crucifixion, our theology is going to be very idealistic, and we're setting ourselves up for uh, a fall. Because what can happen many times, what happens very often in the Bible, is you see, you see men like Jeremiah who, who just say, you know what, I'm not going to make mention of him anymore, nor speak anymore in his name. He came to the end of his ministry. He came to the end as a preacher. And I wonder how many times this happens in a preacher's life or in, mission, in a missionary's life or in a person's life that is a Christian. He said, I'm no longer going to talk about his name, you know. But his word, but then we can see something else happening. And we can see something else take over in Jeremiah's life. But his word was in my heart. And all the times that he had stored up the word of God in his heart, all the times that he had listened to the word of God or read the word of God, uh, it, began, it was being stored up in his heart. Now remember, when you and I hear the word of God, it goes into a part of us that we never forget. That's the spirit. The spirit of a man is that part of us that just can never, ever forget. It's impossible. If you receive something in your spirit from God, you're never going to forget that for eternity. That's why, when, that's why we can be in the middle of something, in the middle of a situation, in the middle of a, a circumstance, and suddenly a Bible verse comes out of nowhere, or a message comes back, or something that someone said to us years ago comes back to our mind, and we just remember it. Because this, this, our spiritual memory, our spiritual mind, uh, does not forget like our natural mind does. And so sometimes when we were in Bible college, we would be taking these tests. We had a lot of information, and Austin is in Bible college. He's doing great. Uh, he's working for Roger Robbins, and we're praying for him, and April wants to go uh, in, in, in January. So we're just going to send everybody in Texas to Baltimore, <laughs> and then we're just going to move somewhere else. <laughs> no, I'm only really kidding. And you sent someone down here to replace you. <laughs> She'll be back. But when you absorb all this information from the Bible, you wonder where it all goes, right? I mean, how many of you have stacks of notebooks from Bible college? Mm-hmm. I mean, I do. I mean, I have just notes and notes and notes and notes. And then you're like, what's the use of it? I'm never reading this. I'm never going back to it. Maybe some of us do. But all of that, if we've listened in faith, all of that is stored up in our spirit. If we hear the word, it goes into, remember, the channels A, B, and C. It goes into the left. Uh, it goes into the left uh, and one day we can teach on this, the, per, the lobe of perception. We mix faith with it. It goes, it sinks deep down into our ears, like Jesus said, let these sayings sink deep down into, your, into you. And it begins, it's stored in our spirit 
for like that moment when we need it, when it's called on. And so this is what happens here. Jeremiah's like, that's it, I'm throwing in a towel. And I love these kind of Bible verses in the Bible because it tells us the Bible is not a hyper-spiritual book. If I was going to write a Bible or a religious book, all everybody in the, in the Bible would be heroes. No one would have any doubts. Everyone would overcome all their sin. Uh, they'd all be rich people. There'd be like no poverty. I mean, it'd be very idealistic, wouldn't it, if we wrote that kind of a book. Now, you know, and when you look at other religious books, you find a lot of idealism, and you don't find any, what I want to talk about in a minute, called hopeful realism. And so we're a thinking crowd here this morning, so I'm going to use some challenging words. So if we go to our next verse, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, we see a New Testament situation. So Jeremiah is like, okay, I'm not going to speak anymore. Then the word that was stored up began to burn in my heart, and I could not resist it. And so, I, and so Jeremiah continues. This is a man that has gone through, uh, his ideals have been challenged and broken, and now he's in a very realistic relationship with God in the grace of God, which we'll talk about in a minute. Paul here is in a very similar situation. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our trouble. Now remember who he's speaking to, right? He's speaking to the Corinthian church, which was a very rich church, Probably at that time a mega church. It was the largest of all the New Testament churches that we know of. Uh, it was the most wealthy, but it was also the church and it also had all the gifts. It was a church that could be, you know, had all the gifts. It was an extremely gifted group of people. Every gift you can imagine. There were people in there with a word of knowledge and people that had uh, insight and gift of discernment and the gift of tongues and. Uh, these amazing gifts, gifts of service and gift of preaching as well. But here Paul is speaking to them about his, about his trouble. You know, and Paul was kind of apostle that he was a Pharisee. He used to be a Pharisee. And you know what a Pharisee, to become a Pharisee, was needed. It was just very stringent um, training and very strict uh, you know, uh, guidelines to follow, and you had to memorize the entire Torah. And um, I was thinking about this the other day. Remember when he's talking about his eye, that you know that he you see how he says he writes to I think it's the Corinthians. You see how big, big and messy letters I'm writing to you. Um, and scholars say that he had some kind of eye problem. And when he was writing, it was like just—it was just like scribble. It was like a child writing. Can you imagine the foolishness of how it looked when you have an amazing anointed apostle like Paul writing this chicken scratch of a letter to a complicated, sophisticated, talented, rich church like Corinth? Imagine that. It's like they're like, "What is this? Did your child write this to me, or what?" You know, it's a letter of the Book of Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, and there is possibly even a third book, but it's not. In the, it's not in the canon of the scripture. And so Paul here is in this place of great weakness, and, and he's writing, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, which came to us in Asia. And I have a theory, actually, about a new theory about his eye, what it could have been. Some say it was malaria, it could have been some disease in his eye. But do you remember in Ephesus, and I could be wrong with this, maybe the timing is wrong with this, but do you remember when he was stoned? He was stoned twice. When they stone you, they're, they're going for the head first, aren't they? And it's very possible that he had some skull fracture or skull damage where it really actually impacted his eye. So here, and you know, this happens. His skull is crushed. He gets up and goes back into, into town and preaches. This guy was out of his mind. 
<laughs> this was the, this was a man that was you know if we did that today, you know that happened in Syria somebody gets stoned and they just walk right back into town and preach. That was the kind of man that uh, Paul was. Why? Because he loved people and he was passionate about the call of God. He said, "For we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia." Asia here is referring to the area which is now, of course, Turkey. That we were, and listen to the conditions that they suffered in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure. Wow. That's amazing, huh? Can you imagine being so burdened that you're just like, you're just squashed to the floor. You're just beyond your limits of burdens. Above strength, meaning that they were so burdened that they had no strength left. To the point where they even doubted that they were going to survive. They, they despised even of life. This was the state of Paul's ministry. This was a great man of God. This was an incredible man of God. This was one of the greatest men of God in the New Testament. And here he is in a lot of trouble. And it's very interesting because um, this happened to a Christian. So he said, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Meaning, what does that mean? It means that like, when you're a convict and you've been sentenced to death and you go back to the jail... You know, you're as good as dead, right? You're not going to, you know, you have, there's no hope in your life. You, there's no dreams. There's no need, you know, there's no, you know, you're not, you're not even motivated to get educated or learn or take advantage of your time in jail. He said that we had the sentence of death in ourselves. And this is where Paul's idealism and the Christian's idealism can get healed. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And, you know... When we think of Paul, who says here in verse 10, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver and, and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. I know these verses in the King James. This is the new King James Version, so, so I'm, I'm tripping up a little bit on, the, on quoting them. Paul is talking here about his, about his um, the crisis that he faces, that when we are a Christian that have idealistic principles, and by the way, 100% of what we learn from the Bible as a new Christian is only initially something that's idealistic. It's a great theory. It's a great, it's something that we can be very excited about. You know, you go to Bible school or you get saved and you, get, you come into the body of Christ, you come into your calling, and there's a lot of idealistic thinking. When we get married, there's a lot of idealistic thinking. You know, my wife's going to be cooking for me like 24-7. How many of you? What? <laughs> hey, no complaining. <laughs> this is going to be like this. It's going to be this, like this. And, you know, and sometimes people, when they are idealistic, and then suffering comes into the plan of God, this suffering confronts our ideals and converts our idealistic thinking into authentic biblical principles. Have you heard, I don't know who said this, but they said, if you scratch the surface of a cynic, you're going to find underneath a disappointed idealist. Ever heard of that? I don't know who said that. But it's very interesting. A cynic, we'll talk about what a cynic is later. But if, you, if you've talked to cynics before, if you scratch a little bit beyond the surface and you find out a little bit about their history, you're going to find out that they were an incredible idealist and that they had some incredible disappointment in their life, and they didn't know how to handle that disappointment. Now, this can happen in a church. This often happens in churches. This happens in religious organizations. This happens in families and marriages, in, 
in the work in the work environment. Um, this happens, you know. My wife and I, when we were living in Baltimore, had a neighbor next door across the street from us. The guy had worked 40, 50 years, and he had actually created a department in his in his um, in his in his company that he created himself. And he hit a certain age, and because he was getting near to that time of retirement, they fired him and replaced him with five young people that that um, that filled his position. He was so dis- he was so disappointed. He was so angry at that at that place where he worked. And this can happen very often with us is that when we face disappointment, either in our personal lives or in, in, the, in, in someone else, we, are, we can be faced with anger and with, with um, the potential of becoming bitter. So we hear sometimes this said, God will never give you more than you can handle. Some people actually think that that's a Bible verse. You know, they kind of, uh, I heard somewhere like a, a status or like a, a status, but a statistic that, that uh, you know, a large majority of people think this is actually a Bible verse, but it's not. Um, it's some people dispense this phrase with such regularity that one would think it really is scripture. And this is probably, that statement is probably based on 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, where Paul says that God will not give us a temptation that is beyond uh, without a way of escape, okay? But the opposite really happens to be true, okay? God at times gives us way more than we can handle in order to drive us into a deeper dependence on him. Does God give us way more than we can handle? Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know about you, but, you know, God gives us way more than we can handle, and he does that on purpose because he wants to take our idealistic think- thinking, our principles, that we have that are idealistic but true that are not able to be attained or maintained because we live in a world of sinners, right? Idealism fails because we live in a world of imperfection, of sinners. Idealism would be great like, okay, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to make all this money and this is going to be so awesome and it's going to be just joy, joy, joy all the time. There's never going to be ever any issues. Idealism can be mixed with needs and with our own dreams. But there's, when, when the cross comes into the picture, it, can, it changes things. Um, people can go to a church. A church can blow up and have a lot of crazy things happen, wrong things happen that can happen. And then they walk away and they say, okay, I'm never going to go to church again. I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to, you know... But God had to allow this thing to happen. God has to allow things to happen to us so that we understand that the trust that we have is not in ourselves or in other people or following someone, but really in Jesus Christ. That is why, as we talked about before a couple weeks ago, God allowed John to be in doubt, remember? John was like, you know, disciples go ask Jesus if he's really the one. You know, and he's the one that baptized Jesus. Who is, how could he do that? Well, we can see a man whose ideals have been crushed because Jesus is not necessarily going down that road that maybe John the Baptist had of him. And so idealism really, it really produces shallowness, doesn't it? It doesn't produce really any kind of genuineness. And number three, idealism causes an achievement complex. And I'm I, don't, I want us to think this morning because 
when we are idealistic, it's going to contribute to more and more frustration in our life. So what happens, and I'm going to talk about the, the, the solution here in a second. We have ideals in our life, and then we are disillusioned. And someone may say, well, I was a Christian, but now I'm disillusioned. And I'm, you know, April and I were talking yesterday, you know, and other people, we've talked, many of all of us have talked to people and say, well, I used to believe that, but now I don't. I was disillusioned, but I'm happy that you believe in that. I think all of us have had those kind of conversations. And so disillusionment is a feeling of disappointment resulting from discovering that something is not as good as one fundamentally or idealistically believed it to be. Why does this happen? Because it's the flesh. The flesh has hyper-spiritual illusions in the mind that can cause, and this is the big thing right here, unrealistic expectations. Idealism creates unrealistic expectations on people, unfair expectations. Uh, people come into the church, and, um, and you can see it all over our society. If someone is a victim, then they are encouraged in our society to, to, to bite back and get as much from the offender as possible, right? You, know, you, go, to a, you go to a restaurant, and, they, and there's something in your food, like something gross, you know? Um, we all have some interesting stories about that. I could tell you some fun stories. I have one story. My brother and I were in Ukraine, and, and uh, we had some ice cream. We were eating ice cream at this one place talking, and I looked down at my ice cream, and there's a Band-Aid in there. <laughs> there's a Band-Aid in there. It's like wrapped. And inside the Band-Aid, you could say there's like, you know, blood spot. And so I'm like, oh, this is so gross. This is so disgusting. I can't believe this. And I was so angry. And then the, the, the waitress came over and she goes, oh, I'm so sorry this happened. I'm so sorry this happened. And actually, it wasn't with me. It was my, it was my brother, actually, this happened to. So, you know, we're so, it's like, this is so bad. And then the manager comes over and she's like, oh, we're so embarrassed. We're so sorry. We're going to give you, you know, your money back. And we're going to give you this coupon and everything. <laughs> and then Pastor Jason, we're eating another ice cream. And he goes, where's my Band-Aid? <laughs> <laughs> It was his band-aid that oh, fell into the ice cream. And so what happens is we like, you know, then we all felt so bad. We were like, oh, we put this whole restaurant through just total fear. And just, you know, we kind of just quietly left the restaurant. And, and my brother, I was like, I was like, Pastor Jason. Anyway, that's a, that's a Pastor Jason story. You know, we, we live in a society where when something goes wrong to us, and we're encouraged to dig out as much from the offender as possible. But it, that's not the issue. And those things that happened, like 9-11 was terrible. It was unbelievable. We, can, we cannot lessen what happened. But when something like that happens, when we have uh, something that smashes our ideals about God or about people that we know or about uh, our job or about even God, we have to come to this point where we have to walk through this and get and understand it from God's divine viewpoint that our expectations may have been fleshly expectations, meaning that whenever, and Pastor Love said this years and years ago, and I'll never forget it, um, discouragement is what is the result of when you have put your trust in yourself. Disappointment is the result, is what you experience when you have put your trust in, in your faith in other people. And this is so true because God says, you know what, this person has a precious heart after me. I'm going to bless that person, but I have to break some things in their life. I have to break them. 
Disillusionment is, a, is actually a gift. It's actually a gift. And this is hard to say. It sounds almost sadistic. But when we experience disillusionment, we should say, thank you, Lord, that my ideals have been broken and now I can enter into real reality, which is faith and hopeful realism. Disillusion means, disillusionment means have no more having any more misconceptions or false impressions or false judgments in life. It means that we're free from these deceptions. Remember John, in John 2, verse 24, Jesus said that he knows what's in the heart of man and he has committed himself, he has not committed himself to any man. Jesus had a healthy love but dis, um, distrust for the human heart. However, though no longer deceived, our experience of disillusionment may actually leave us cynical and overly critical in our judgment of others. And so I want to say something about cynicism really quick. So the word cynicism is actually, it's, it's when, it's, it's stems from an ancient Greek philosophy. It's an attitude of scornful or jaded negativity, especially a general distrust of the integrity or professed motives of others. It's like when a person is cynical, they've experienced disappointment, they've, dis, they've experienced disillusionment, and they no longer trust anybody's motives you know you ever been in a situation where you've just poured out your heart to bless somebody and they come back and they're like well what do you want from me you know what are you doing that for you know are you trying to bribe me or you know what are you trying to get out of this and this is a cynical person and this is a sad state when a person comes to this place cynicism arises when 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 our brokenness which happens we are broken when we are when we discovered there's a disillusionment um, and there's a brokenness that follows when that brokenness is not addressed by the word of God and it's not addressed by the spirit of God. It's not addressed by uh, the, the word of grace and healed. When we are not healed, it, begin, it turns into, it sours into bitterness and our spiritual wounds become infected. And so I just want to say this, that we could look back over the many years of our lives and see some people that maybe we knew that did not process things and they were overcome by the victimhood and they were really the victim and you could say yeah you were the victim and you were you were you know you were violated and there's no and and there's no there's no denouncing the pain of that we're not today talking about it's wrong to have pain Pain is actually something that God has put into our soul that we can learn how to understand something's wrong and I need to be healed. And we go to God with our pain. We don't go to people and try to dig out of the offender uh, what was, because, because that's grace. Grace means, grace and mercy means that God is not taking from humanity uh, a payback for what they did for Jesus Christ on the cross when they crucified him. So I want to finish with this, is that the resurrection. Think about the resurrection, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ with me for a moment. This is the classic, most, this is the greatest example, I think, of disillusionment in the Bible. So you have these disciples, 12 disciples, plus the hundreds and thousands of people that were following Jesus, right? You have two to 25, how many years is that? Was it 4,000 or was it 
depending on if you count time before the flood or after the flood, you have thousands of years of prophecy about the coming Messiah who's going to come and he's going to bring, he's going to rule with a rod of iron and he's going to, and he's going to set up his throne in Jerusalem and he's going to rule in righteousness and all the enemies of Israel will be conquered and there'll be peace on earth and uh, righteous and, and, and um, the lion will lay with the lamb and uh, there will be justice in, on the earth. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he's coming in on a donkey a week before he's crucified into Jerusalem, no one is understanding that Jesus in seven days is going to be crucified. There's this, there's this citywide celebration. It's like something you'd see in New Orleans. Like the whole city is just partying. <coughs> Everyone is like celebrating. And, and, and Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples I will, be, I will be falsely accused, delivered over to the magistrates, and I will be crucified. But I'll rise in the third day. And it seems like they are not getting it. Because in our ideals, when we... And you know what? It's okay. Jesus understood that this is going to be this way. In our ideals, when we are in our idealism, we are not seeing a cross. We are not seeing the possibility of anything ever going wrong because we're living in this kind of aspiration you know like this is going to be amazing you know and it's going to all be great and for us to think the other way when we're being blessed like you know I'm being really blessed right now this is really awesome but I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop kind of thinking like can't be good like this all the time something bad's going to happen right you know it's all going to come crashing in at some point that's a part of us that is the cynic inside of us that that's the old sin nature and that's actually unbelief, and that's, that's sin for us to be thinking like that, because it's putting our trust in ourselves. So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. The disciples, everyone's rejoicing. It's, this is going to be an incredible event. Suddenly, he's betrayed by Judas. And, and this is where you know, the idealism of the disciples was, confront, was confronted and shattered. They were shattered. Can you imagine that? Like, you know, this happening, and Jesus is now, you know, his disciples are huddled in some place, and are like, where's Jesus? I don't know. He was taken into this back back building, and there's this, these, these weird meetings going on, and rumors of betrayal and Judas. And, and so what happens is he's, he's delivered up, and he's crucified. Maybe the disciples were praying. I don't know. Maybe they're praying, oh, God, just deliver Jesus from this, you know, this injustice. You know, God, save Jesus from this. Maybe his mother, his own mother, you know, imagine your child being in this situation, being falsely accused. And his mother is just interceding, you know. Who could ever intercede more than a mother could? Here is a mother interceding for her son, Jesus. And God doesn't answer that prayer. That's amazing. We're just, we're astounded. We are, we are at a point where like, I don't even know if I believe in God. Like, I prayed, I believed that I got a promise from God and now Jesus is dead. Not just three, four hours, not just six hours, not 12, but 72 hours, right? 72 hours, three days, 72 hours, Jesus is, is, is dead. And the disciples, they go, first night, second night, they're just trying to process this. They're disillusioned. Their idealism has been broken, and then they are totally in a place where Christ is crucified. Jesus, when he was crucified, uh, he also crucified all the un, the, the improper expectations that people had on Jesus or on God. He crucified all of that. 
all of the fleshly expectations that maybe that Judas had of Jesus, that Jesus was going to be this great world, he was going to be a great world leader and Judas was going to be his PR man. You know, you see Judas kind of giving Jesus, coaching him sometimes. You know, like if you want to be popular, then do this. But that's crucified. Then Peter, you know, all of the, everyone's expectations of Jesus has been crucified. The entire nation hears that their future savior has been crucified at the hands of the Romans. And so at that moment, all cynicism has been crucified. And then that amazing day, the third day, Jesus rises from the dead and he's alive. And people, how do you process that? People are already dead. All their expectations and their hopes and everything have been already crushed. And Jesus rises from the dead. And God says, now we're going to begin with realistic thinking. You know, like one writer put it this way. When, when a man is crucified and murdered and put into a grave, three days later crawls out of the grave, leaving his, his grave clothes behind. Something's amiss in the world. Something's not right. This is so different. And I think at that moment, that's when realistic thinking begins. When we are crushed, and this is what we want to share with people that have been deeply, deeply disturbed by, by, by disappointment in their life, that, that, life is, that we live in a world that has evil in it. And God has allowed this evil to be in the world to prove how good he is. That when evil seems to be triumphing, in the end, God will triumph. And I just want to close with this, is that when we understand, when we allow God to bring us through that painful process of our ideals being broken, then we have a choice. We, we're, at a cross, we're, at a, we're at a fork in the road. We can either go down the road, that dark road of disappointment and cynicism, where we say, I'm never going to believe anyone ever again that seems to have any good motives, you know? Or we go down the other road and we say, God, yes, you broke me. My bones are broken. Spiritual bones are broken. But I'm going to believe that there's going to be a resurrection down the road, that, that, that there's going to be something is going to rise from the ashes in this very, very terrible situation. And I think when we share that with people, that Romans 8, verse 28 and 29, that this is going to work together for good in your life, that something good's going to come from this. I think that sometimes we are praying that God would deliver us from things, but God doesn't want to deliver us from things. God wants to deliver us in things. We've heard that taught before, right? Like God, you know, like Daniel was praying, get me out of the lion's den. You know, that wasn't his prayer. God delivered him in the lion's den. And then he delivered him out of the lion's den. And God wants to deliver us in a certain circumstance before he delivers us out of things. He wants to deliver us in temptation before he delivers us out of temptation. God wants to deliver us in the need before we are delivered uh, into a place of satisfaction of our need. God wants to deliver us from things and bring us to a point, a very realistic point in our Christianity, and a lot of Christians don't make it beyond this point. A lot of people come to this point and they don't follow him anymore. John chapter 6. They, and, and many of them turned back and followed him no more. Are they saved? Yes, they're Christians. But are they disciples? Maybe not. They're no longer a Methodist. They're no longer following the truth of the message. And they are in a place, of, they're a casualty, a spiritual casualty. And so when we are faced with these circumstances, we can encourage ourselves with the fact that they're, that this old message back in the day, I think it was um, Jack Hiles that preached it, old Baptist preacher, said that it's Friday, but Sunday is coming. 
that it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That it's a very dark day today, but there, but down the road there's going to be a resurrection, and that's hopeful realism. It's not idealistic to say, you know what, you know this is all this is all terrible, but it's going to come out great. That's not idealism because it's terrible and it can't even get any worse. So idealism ends there. Cynicism ends there. Hopeful realism takes over. Another way of saying that is just faith. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and he will direct your paths, and uh, he's going to make something great out of it. And so um, when we look at this day of September 11th, and when we look at the circumstances in our lives, let's just understand that for, we need to dig deeper and define what is the mind of God in this and why did this happen and what is God trying to do. But the world will only, the world will pass over because it's shallow, it's idealistic. It'll look at September 11th purely from a patriotic perspective. And there is that there. But when we look at September 11th or when we look at tragedy in our life, or when we look at personal failure or failures of other people, we have to say, you know what? It's bigger than my failure. It's bigger than somebody's failure. It's bigger than what the church did to me. It's much bigger than what the company did to me. It's, all, it's much bigger than all of that. It's what it is is really that God's in this, and I have to bring in the cross and bring all my issues to the cross and lay them at the cross, at the foot of the cross, and say, Lord, I just surrender this all to you. Give me your mind. At that point, we allow God to resurrect us and resurrect the situation so that we can discover his eternal purpose in it. Amen? Mm -hmm. So let's just close in prayer.